Hey, what's going on, everyone? We are so glad you're choosing to take time out of your day to listen to our sermons. Our prayer for you is that these messages would not replace your belonging to a local church, but would only be supplemental in your walk with Jesus. With that being said, we love you, and we hope you enjoy the message today. We've somehow gotten it all backwards. Our quest for purpose and fulfillment has led us to squander our lives, toiling to build for ourselves our own personal kingdoms. We want to be important. We want to be first. We want to be known. And so we've forgotten that we were never put here to build our own kingdoms. We were put here to build God's kingdom. And to the world, God's kingdom is backwards, upside down, if you will. Jesus flipped the script and told us that the first will be last and the least will be greatest. And so we have to unlearn everything the world has taught us and learn what it means to live in God's upside down kingdom. They had been waiting for what seemed like an eternity. Since, since the beginning, they had been promised that there would be one who could overcome evil. And in that garden back in Genesis, God had made a promise that one day, one day there would be a descendant of Eve who would finally make all things right. It was later promised that the one who would come and make all things right, he would come and he would be their king. He would reign and rule with justice. And and that would cause the people and the land to flourish. He would be a king who no one could stand against. No corruption could overtake him and his kingdom would be perfect. But that promise was made generations ago. It was ancient history at this point, and and God had stopped communicating with them for 400 years until John the Baptist stepped onto the scene, and he came announcing someone who just might be the one, someone who just might be the next king and just might be able to stand up to evil and conquer it once and for all. And as a people under Roman oppression, well, This certainly felt like it couldn't have come at a better time. And so the story that we're going to look at for Palm Sunday this morning, uh, this story is recorded multiple times, but in Luke's record, he seems to have a certain agenda on his mind. And I want us to capture that agenda that Luke has. I want us to see what exactly it is that Luke is trying to communicate to us that makes his account of this historical event so significant. And so Luke chapter 19, uh, verses 28 and 29, it says, And when he, Jesus, had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet. And I'm going to stop right there. (laughs) You've you've already got to stop because something really important has happened here already. The biblical authors 
were very methodical in how they wrote. They would often link certain biblical ideas or images together so that when you read something, it would remind you of former stories. Uh, there's a communication tool similar to this that, that we actually use all the time. It's what we uh, have this really sophisticated phrase for. It's called an inside joke, right? Uh, you know what I'm talking about. The other day I was, I was talking to a friend who, he has a two-year-old daughter, and he was telling me that earlier in the day she had some goldfish, and she dropped them on the floor. And without missing a beat, I said, oh, and you gave her uh, raisins instead? And now this definitely wouldn't make sense to anyone else in the conversation, right? Because you don't have the context. What do raisins have to do with goldfish? But what I was doing was recalling a former conversation. We had formerly talked about a time that his daughter was asking for goldfish. So he ran into the house and he got her what he could. He got some, some Annie's bunnies, right? Not quite goldfish, but they're, they're basically the same thing. If you close your eyes and ate them, you wouldn't even be able to tell the difference. They taste the same. So uh, he went and he got these, but his daughter vehemently rejected them. Uh, and she demanded that daddy get her raisins because kids are, well, you know, kids are psychotic. <laughs> and so by him talking about goldfish and me referencing raisins, what I was doing was recalling our former conversation. It, it was more than just making a reference to another food. It was a reminder that brought up the whole story, the context, the feelings, the memories, everything. But of course, without context, you'd miss all of this. You wouldn't get it. it. It wouldn't make any sense to you. What do raisins have to do with goldfish unless there's a former story that ties these things together, right? And this is largely how the biblical authors work to communicate with us. And I think that's exactly what's, what's happening when you read through the Bible. Because, you know, so often what happens is when we read through the Bible, we, we read passages as these little standalone episodes, right? Just these little things that happen one at a time to, to tell us uh, little bits about how to be moral and, and how to live in a way that God would want you to live and, um, you know, how to answer the questions of life and all these. But that's missing the point. That's not what the biblical authors are trying to do. They're, they're writing this one unified story throughout the entirety of the Bible that all leads to Jesus. It's all one story. It's all connected. And so when you start to read through continuously, and especially if you'll, if you'll take the time to read in large chunks, what you'll find is as you're reading, you'll, you'll catch yourself saying, wait a second, that looks really familiar to what I just read a minute ago, just with a little twist. Because the authors are trying to pull something out. They, they realize that they can write a little bit up here and encapsulate a full story back here. All of the meaning behind it, all of the emotions behind it, all of the context behind it, and place that weight on this new story to give you the background to make you feel something when you're going into it. It's a genius way to write, and, it, and it's a genius way for them to have communicated with us. So, the Mount of Olives, 
right? Luke is doing something really cool here. When we were reading in Luke 19, we stopped at it. It said the Mount uh, of Olivet, or we call it the Mount of Olives, right? And Luke's doing something really cool. He's making the point that Jesus was on a mountain, right? Which, if we're reading through this episodic lens, means nothing. But if we're to take this in the full context of the Bible, then suddenly we can start to see that there is some significance here. And that significance starts to get pulled out really quickly. Like, for instance, to give a few examples, where did Abraham go to sacrifice Isaac in the Old Testament? He went to Mount Morah. Where did Moses go to meet God? He went to Mount Sinai. Where did God meet his people and give the law? Through Moses, it was at Mount Sinai. Where was the temple built? It was on the hill or the mount in Jerusalem. Where did people worship idols throughout the Old Testament? The high places or the mounts. Are you getting the correlation here? The mounts were reserved for the kings and the gods. They dwelt at the tops of mountains while us lowly humans and beasts, we live on the ground below. That's, that's the way that these ancient Jews and ancient civilizations and cultures would have understood this. That's the way that they viewed and understood the earth that they lived on, right? And so that's the story that's been told from the beginning. And that's what we should be keying in on here. It's really important context for us to notice because almost always when you're reading through the Old Testament and you run into a mountain, it should trigger something in your mind, that makes you think about all of this. And so that's exactly what Luke is doing when we get to the New Testament. He's trying to trigger something in our minds. Because as Jesus is about to make his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Luke first wants us to notice that he has set himself on a place that's reserved only for gods and kings. And so let's keep reading in Luke chapter 19. We'll pick up back in, uh, in verse 29 when it says that he was on the mount that is called Olivet. And then it says he sent two of the disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you'll find a colt tied, on which no one's ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say to them this, the Lord has need of it. And I want you to key in, whenever it says Lord, you get that capital L there? You can replace that in what we understand as king. The king has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it, and they found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And so this is a real weird story that we're reading here, but it's important to catch what is exactly going on in this passage. 
Do you see the richness of the passage? Luke is doing everything he can to draw out the clearest picture he can possibly draw that is saying, behold the king. The king is here. The king you've been waiting for. The king who will make all things right. The king who has been promised. The king who comes from above. The king is here. And Matthew and Mark, they both tell this story in a way that that we may be a little more familiar with. They both tell of the people shouting, Hosanna in the highest. And the people were shouting, here comes the Savior. But we have to remember, what did the people need saved from? Because the Jews had a much different idea of why they needed a Savior than what Jesus had on his mind. But, but Luke, he paints us this beautiful picture of not just a Savior, but a King. And a king that, more than anything, it's the king that whether they realized it or not, he's the king that they need. It's it's actually a super cool way that Luke tells the story of Jesus coming down from the Mount of Olives into the city of Jerusalem. He's literally painting a picture of the king stepping off of his throne, leaving his palace to come down to lowly us, to be among his people, to be with his people. Church, this is the story of Christmas at Easter on Palm Sunday. <laughs> Are you seeing it? This is, this is exciting stuff for us to be reading. Do you see the imagery that Luke is giving us? It's not just that Jesus is coming down Mount Olive, the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem. There's imagery behind it that Luke is trying to unpack for us. The king is stepping down from his throne in heaven to come to earth and to be with us, to be one of us. That's the story that Luke is giving us. This isn't any ordinary king. This is... They would have had a picture of, the, of a king in their mind. They would have had to have something in their minds. This wasn't it. This, this would have blown off any of the ideas that they ever could have had of what this king was going to be. And then Jesus, he keeps moving in Luke chapter 19, verses 39 and 34. And, and the people are saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And then it says, And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The very stones would cry out. Listen, I'm glad we have worshipers in our church. I'm, I'm glad that there are still people worshiping. Because I think we all have enough problems right now that if Rock started yelling at us, it wouldn't be helping anyone, right? If, if the rocks started shouting out, if the trees started proclaiming, it would, it would probably just be a little bit too much for us to handle right now. I think we're all just maybe a little fragile right here and now. So I appreciate you worshipers out there, those of you who still are worshiping on your couches and your living rooms to this time. and uh, We appreciate you. Just, just know that. And uh, But I think that this is, actually a really healthy reminder for us that 
not all of this rests on our shoulders, right? You're not the one sitting on the throne. You're not the one who has to save the world and you never will be. That's not your responsibility. Sure, we do our part as active participants in the kingdom of God. That's what it means to be a Christian. But we're not on the throne. We're not responsible for saving humanity. We're, we're not the ones who are looking at everything going on in the world and having to decide, what are we going to do about this? Because there's a king who already has it under control. And, and I think that's a necessary reminder for us. And the Pharisees, they're coming to Jesus and telling him to rebuke these people because they're clearly celebrating him as the coming Messiah who has been promised since the beginning. And of course, the Pharisees, they don't believe that Jesus is actually the Messiah. So we give the Pharisees a pretty bad rap, honestly. But listen, I'd be willing to bet that most of them legitimately thought that they were defending the honor of God. And what Jesus needs them to know is that a king doesn't need their defense. Whether they recognize him as the king or not, the, the king who sits on his throne, he doesn't need you to defend him. The king is powerful enough on his own. He has enough authority on his own. He has enough sovereignty on his own. And the Pharisees are trying, coming in and trying. They think that they're defending God. God doesn't need your defense. There's a saying that a lion doesn't need your defense. Just let him loose. He can handle his own. He can take care of himself. And Jesus takes this moment with the Pharisees to kind of flex on them by saying, listen, listen, guys, even if all of these people did stop celebrating me as the king, the earth wouldn't be able to. Creation would cry out. The rocks would cry out. The trees would rejoice. The world would welcome its king with open arms. And there's something to be said even about this. Because it means that God doesn't actually need any of us. And, and sure, that can stun for a moment. Because we all want to be needed. But... I think that more than any of us want to be needed, we all want to be wanted. And at the end of the day, that's what God is proving to us. That's what Jesus is communicating. He doesn't need any of the people who are celebrating him to be celebrating. Creation itself could do that if he needed it to. But he wants the community of humanity. He wants you. You watching this sermon right now, whether you're on your couch watching, whether you're with your family, whether you're watching on your phone or a computer or, or however you're receiving this, I want you to understand that the God of the universe wants you. That should put things in perspective for us. We are wanted. But, but don't let that make you lose sight. Because at the end of the day, it's all about Jesus. He's the king. And that's the point. He wants us, but even if we fail to do what he created us to do, creation will pick up the slack.
Luke's whole focus in writing this is for you and I to understand as clearly as possible that Jesus is king. Not just king in Jerusalem, not just king of Israel, not just king of Christianity, not just king of the world. He's literally king over all of creation, over the universe. It all belongs to him. And yet in that, he has stepped down from his throne to enter into humanity to save us because he loves and wants us more than we could ever understand or comprehend. But then the the story in Luke 19, it moves on. And it says that as Jesus passes through all the the fanfare and all the people worshiping him and, and laying their coats on the ground for his donkey to walk on, he gets close and he sees Jerusalem. This is where everyone's expecting for him to go and set up his throne, become the king, take down the Romans. And he looks at Jerusalem and he weeps. He then says out loud that he wishes the city would have known the peace that was intended for it. He wishes they would know that their king had come, but they've missed it. What? How, how did they miss it? We've clearly just seen how he's, been, how he's being celebrated as king from the Mount of Olives coming down into the city, riding a donkey as, as prophesied, and people laying their coats down, they're waving palm branches, they're exclaiming that the king who comes in name of the Lord is coming. How could you say that they missed that the king had come. The problem was that Israel never understood what it was, what it was going to mean for the king to come. They never understood the character of their king. They never understood what their king wanted for them. See, they knew they needed saving, and they knew that they needed the prophesied king to come and save them, but they thought they needed saving from the Roman government. And Jesus, their king, He didn't really have so much of an interest in that. He was far more concerned with their souls. He was far more concerned with their eternal well-being. He came to redeem them from the clutches of sin and evil, not the Romans. And they missed it. They missed their king. And so many of us are in a season that we're looking for hope right now. And rightly so. Things are scary. There's a lot of anxiety tied to the things that we're seeing around the world right now. And I'm not downplaying any of that. But just like the Jews, I don't want us to miss the point. If suddenly we were to see that Jesus was coming back right here and now, I think that many of us would celebrate being saved from this virus. It's our biggest fear and and our focus is being saved from this. But the king has something different in mind. The king has something bigger in mind. A part of me wonders if our king came back right now, if we would miss the point just like the Jews in Luke chapter 19 did. We'd celebrate the Savior, the Savior. We'd lay our coats down for him to walk upon. We'd wave the palm branches. We'd cheer for the king. But would it be for the right reason? So listen, I want to bring you some comfort during a time right now. Jesus is on the throne. His kingdom is real, and he is working to make his will be done on earth as in heaven. You are valuable. You are loved. You are wanted by King Jesus. He is available for you to cast all of your anxiety and fear on him. Wanting to be saved from this virus, wanting things to be like they were, hating living in fear, that's all normal. 
And you're not wrong for feeling that. And Jesus is available to deliver comfort and and peace that, that passes all understanding in times just like these. He's here for you. We as a church are here for you. Don't miss that. But don't miss the king. Don't miss the king who is still more interested in ridding the world of sin and evil. Don't miss the king who in Luke 19 was preparing to die so that you wouldn't ever have to fear death. Don't miss the king who's offering you salvation in exchange for following him as your king. If this is your first experience with Jesus, or or if you've just never entered into relationship with Jesus, we want to give you that opportunity. We, we want you to understand that he is here for you and he loves you more than you could ever realize. So much so that he died on a cross and paid that penalty for everything you've ever done wrong so that you wouldn't have to. You don't have to earn your salvation. You just have to accept it. By, by repenting, or, or in other words, by turning from the way that you've lived your life and trying to live it all on your own and turning and acknowledging instead Jesus as Lord of your life by committing to following him forever as your king. The Bible says that if you repent and confess him as Lord, you'll be saved. And so if, if you have any questions or would like someone to pray with you, please send, send us a message wherever you're, you're seeing this or hearing it or, or email us at portervillefirstbaptist at gmail.com. And we would love to engage with you. We would love to tell you more about this wonderful man, Jesus, who we call King. Let me, let me pray for you. God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you sent your son, Jesus, for us. And we pray that that in every living room, in every house, in every space right now, that your Holy Spirit would be present, convicting hearts and pulling people closer to you. That we would all recognize the reality of, of sin and the spiritual warfare that's going on around us and that we would press into Jesus in this time. That we would see that he is king, that you are still on your throne, God. And that that would ease all anxiety and all fear. We pray for peace, God. We pray for healing for our land. We pray uh, that through all of this, people would come to know and love you in new and profound ways. Jesus, remind us that you're on your throne. Remind us that you're in control. And we pray that there would be revival through this. That people would learn to love you. And God, we thank you again for who you are. We thank you for what you're doing and what we know you're going to do. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.